0: stepped into Grace Assembly when we are in the middle of a series that we began about five weeks ago in the book of Revelation. And uh, today we are approaching a letter that was written to the city of Pergamum. And the title of this message is Pergamum, Constant but Compromised. Constant but Compromised. We've talked about these seven letters that were written in these first few chapters of Revelation were really following a postal route of the way that each of them would have been dropped off, Pergamum being the third in this letters to these churches as we look at them. And if you were to travel to Pergamum from Smyrna, where we were last week, it would be about a 50-mile journey along the coast, and then you would turn and come inland about 10 miles. And Pergamum was a city that was 1,000 feet up on a hill. It was, it was a beautiful place and had a view of everything around them. You could see from this city the Mediterranean Sea, the Aegean Sea, and uh, it was also the seat of government. It was where the capital city would have been. And although it was a coastal city, and it wasn't as big as Smyrna and Ephesus, it was perhaps the most beautiful city, location-wise, of all of those that were written letters there. It was also, because it was the seat of government, it was where the Roman proconsul... Was located, And just like we have New York City as our biggest city and then you go inland and you come up the river to get to Albany where our capital city was, that was kind of the way it was with Pergamum. It was the government seat nonetheless. And I believe that the Lord has a great deal to tell us, to speak to us as it relates to the letter that he wrote to them. So Father, as we prepare our hearts today, we recognize that we can't learn a single thing without the help of your Holy Spirit. You told us that it was through your spirit that you would lead us and guide us into all truth. Lord, we come today because we are in desperate need of hearing a word from God that relates directly to our lives and where we live. And you know our needs before we ever entered in, and I believe that you are gonna speak to us today. And so, Father, with open hearts, We approach your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Pergamum was an interesting city in the fact that it was given very much to pagan worship. In fact, it was the first town that had erected a temple in honor of a living Roman emperor. And this temple was erected to Augustus Caesar... Because it was located on a hill, the very highest heights of this particular town was the seat for four different temples that represented four cults that were highly visible and highly participated in in the city. It It was the center of worship for four different cults. And for those of you that may have seen the Lion King, there's this one little part where they're, they're holding up this baby lion and it's got this little outcropping over there that everybody could see. There was an outcropping that was like that in Pergamum and on the top of it was built an altar to Zeus which probably will indicate to us why when we get to verse 13 that it says where Satan has his throne because that's the way this looked to those that were seeing it there. Interesting enough about Pergamum was that there were priests and priestesses that were known as healers. And their their emblem was that of a snake. And we find it interesting because that snake is still on emblems that represent medical industry still to this day. And so if you ever wondered where that came from, it came from the city of Pergamum. So here is this church A small church in this town that is overrun by pagan worship. And and the people that live there considered themselves to be very intellectual. They had a library of over 200,000 scrolls. And, And so people thought themselves to be very intellectual, very high thinking. And then there's this church. We're not sure who started it. The record isn't clear. Perhaps it was Paul while he was traveling, but somehow the word had got here and a church started at Pergamum. And if you have your Bibles, I'm gonna ask that you would turn to Revelation chapter two. And we're going to examine verses 12 through 17 today as we look at this passage. And it says this, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words who has a sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antibas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, so they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you have also hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. So for those of you that are wondering if you're going to throw that rock at me today, you are not. I promise you, you are not, but it will have some meaning for you. As in all of the letters that are written to these churches, it... Starts out with this description of Jesus, which we draw from chapter one, when John was having this vision of the real Jesus, as we talk, described it in the seven majestic qualities. And each one of these letters draws one of these qualities, and we begin to find out why. And it says here to the angel of the church at Pergamum, write: These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. So the Lord addresses this church. ...by describing himself as, I am the one who has the sword. And it's interesting because in the Greek, this is a very precise wording. In fact, it would literally be interpreted to say this. These things says he who has the sword, the two-edged, the sharp. I mean, he is describing this sword as different than any other sword in the history of mankind. And we look at to say, why is it so important when he talks about it being a two-edged sword or a sword that cuts both ways? I think it's interesting, number one, because the church at Pergamum had a two-edged need that the Lord must address with the word of his mouth. And the sword represents that. The first need that they had was they were faced with the sword of a government that was against them. In Roman times, the Roman proconsuls were divided into two groups of people. There were those that could wear a sword, and there were those that could not. And as I was reading and studying about this, it almost comes across as as today there are those of you who have a permit to carry a concealed weapon, and there are those of you that do not. The difference is is that if you were permitted to carry a sword, you were permitted to pull it out and use it and kill somebody with no questions asked. And so when Jesus speaks to them about, I am the one who has the sword, they were living in an environment where the Roman proconsul could pull out a sword and kill any of them or martyr any of them at any given moment. And so by using this terminology, the first thing that Jesus says to them is, I just want you to know there may be a lot of swords out there, but I am the one who holds the authority of the sword. I'm the last word. I'm the highest authority, and there's no reason for you to fear because I have the sword. So the two-edged sword meant something to them. The second aspect of that double-edged sword was, first of all, I want you to know, I will take care of the government. The other side of it was, I need you to know that I have authority over the church. And he says, I am prepared to use my word as a sword unless you deal with the problem that is in the middle of your church. If you don't deal with it, I will deal with it. And so the Lord is seen represented to us as having a sword, the word of his mouth. And and we confess once more that the government is upon his shoulders. He has the ultimate authority. He is the highest royalty that we can serve today. And he reminded that of them there as well. And so to him who has a two-edged sword, to him who stands above the power of governments and presidents and prime ministers and emperors and Caesars and anyone else who seeks to control my people, I want you to know I have the sword, declares the Lord. The one who holds the sword has authority. Not only does he hold it, it is his word that he speaks. He moves on from there and begins to diagnose the believers in verse 13. And he has this commendation that he wants to give to the church. He says, I know where you live. Let that sink in for a minute. I know where you live. Because he follows it up with these words. Where Satan has his throne. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me even in the days of Antipas my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where satan lives yeah you seeing a theme here about what he's thinking about this city satan's throne is there satan lives there some of you think that you live in a bad place you didn't live live in pergamum and the first thing that he commends this church for is he says you have an unbreakable grip on me in other words I know the effort that you are putting into living for me and staying true to me. He said, You are holding fast to my name. And the interesting thing about this terminology is if you will remember back to chapter 1, Jesus is described as in his hand or in his grips are the seven stars of the seven churches. And he's walking them on the lampstands. This word that described the grip of Jesus on the churches is the same Greek word that is describing the church or the individual's grip on their testimony. He says, I know that you are hanging on with all you've got to your testimony and to serve me." He said, "You hold fast my name in that place where Satan dwells." I love reading some things about Dr. George Wood, and especially he used to be the general superintendent of the assemblies of God, and he grew up a missionary kid in China, and he and his sisters have fascinating stories about what it was like to be involved in ministry in places where the demonic was alive and well. He writes a letter and he said, my younger sisters in our our earlier days, we we went to a city where the only place for my sisters to sleep was in the upper levels of a temple to idols. And as they were brought up into this room, he said they opened their cots and in the middle of their cots were two giant idols. And they had just enough room to lay down on either side of that and they said they did what every good Assembly of God girl did. They took their sheets and covered up the idols so that they wouldn't have to look at those things. And he said, in the middle of the night, one of my sister's bed began to shake. It was as if somebody was grabbing it and swinging it back and forth and she's literally hanging onto the cot as it's being moved and nobody is there. And she began to recognize that she was sleeping in a room dedicated to, to Satan and just the, the attack that was coming against her. And as she began to cry out the name of Jesus, she felt as if there was a hand being put over her mouth. And in the middle of this spiritual attack, finally she was able to yell, Jesus! And in that moment, that attack ended. And peace came to that room. And it was after great difficulty that finally she was able to relax as they realized they were sleeping in a room where the power of the devil was obvious. As I read that story, I have to think that that's probably the way the people in Pergamum felt. It was a stifling place to have to be a Christian. It was a frightening place. It was the headquarter of four heathen religions. And therefore, it was fitting that Satan would dwell there. But even more important than that, it was a place of government authority where the Romans had the power to execute a Christian with no questions asked. It was a place, therefore, where Satan dwelled. These Christians are called to dwell there. It says in verse 13, I know where you dwell. The word dwell is a very powerful and strong word in the original because it doesn't carry with it the idea that somebody was just passing through or a sojourner or a guest on a trip. It, it carries with it a permanence. It was, it was a word that described them as, I know that you are living here and the roots have been grown deep into this place. That I, I know that you are dwelling here. This is home. And within that, there's no idea given that suddenly they're going to be vaporized out of that situation But they had to dwell there. There was no escapist mentality that had been permitted to them. He said, you are dwelling where Satan lives. And maybe somebody here today is feeling like, man, I I feel like the house in which I live and the difficulties of my home, I feel sometimes like I'm, I'm living in hell. Some of you may feel like when you get up in the morning and you go to work, that it's like you are walking into the pits of hell because of everything that you know is coming against you. Some of you that may go to public universities may feel as if you are walking into the gates of hell when you step on the grounds of places that no longer proclaim our God is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Some of you may be facing things in your life and you said, I know what they felt like at Pergamon because I feel every day as if I'm in a spiritual battle for my very life and my very soul. And he says, In the middle of all of this, I know where you dwell. And you have an unbreakable grip on me in the middle of that. You have an unshakable loyalty, even in the face of martyrdom. And then he says this, even in the days of Antipas, my witness being killed, you stood firm. What's really fascinating about this is this is the only other name besides John and Jesus that's mentioned in Revelation. And we don't know very much about him. I I was trying to do some research, even in the book of martyrs, to find out if we could find anything about this individual named Antipas. And there is a, a legend, and I will leave it as a legend rather than anything else, that Antipas was taken and put into a bowl of boiling water in the public square and boiled and roasted alive. And Jesus mentions him. It says, I know that you are living in a situation where these things can happen. This is the story of the church at Pergamum, And then Christ gives the church a condemnation. Now, honestly, by the time you get to this point, you're thinking, there's nothing I would want to say bad about a church and a group of people that kind of live in that situation. What is there possible that you can say? They're holding fast to the Lord. And this is what the correction he gives to them in verses 14 and 15 because the Lord sees his church and his bride and himself as pastor and all that they suffer and this is what he brings to their attention. Nevertheless, nevertheless, after everything you're going through, after the place where you were living, after the fact that you were living in the center of four cultic headquarters, nevertheless, I have something against you. You have people there that hold to the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to entice to sin by the eating of food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality likewise you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans what what is this teaching of Balaam and this this teaching of the Nicolaitans business it's it's fascinating because they are probably the same group with two different titles probably one would have been a group that they would have been known in the Old Testament another as they get into the New Testament and, and Because their names in Hebrew and Greek mean exactly the same thing. It was to conquer the people. So people are attending. There's people that are being influenced by groups of people that their church name is to conquer the people. And so I submit that if you were a cult or if you were a a, a heretical type of group, that you probably are going to want to name yourself something that would be appealing to people. And so if anybody knew anything about the Old Testament terminology of Balaam. You know, it was a person in, in scripture that was so dense that it tells us in Numbers twenty two twenty eight 28 that a donkey had to talk to him to get their attention. So this wouldn't exactly be the name that you would want to put out on the sign of your church, the Balaam church. We're dense. <laughs> so being more complimentary and knowing that it means the same thing, they chose to be called the Nicolaitans it's 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 a much more complimentary name but it means the exact same thing so so Jesus is pointing out I understand that what you're going through now this new name represents an old tactic that's been around for a while and what was particular about this group is that they brought compromise into the body. In fact, that's what Balaam did. If you, if you were to read in Numbers about the story, Balaam was a prophet that the king of Moab had tried to hire to curse the people of God. And three times he tried to throw a curse at them, and every time it turned out to be a blessing. And so the king was really getting upset because I'm paying you a lot of money to curse them, and every time you do something, it ends up being to their benefit. And so as Balaam was leaving, he left them this piece of advice. In Numbers chapters 25 and 31, he said this. Use your women as bait. Use your women as bait. Entice the children of Israel to commit adultery. And that when they do that, it will be natural for them, having entered in the door of sexual immorality, to follow all the other things that you want them to do. And Israel committed a terrible sin and 24,000 people died. And so it came through the counsel of Balaam who taught just teach them to compromise with the world. And the Lord is looking at this church at Pergamum and, and so is Satan and Satan knows he's tried everything to try to kill it by persecuting it and since he can't do it by persecution he chooses to attack the church by seducing it. And here's the seduction, and those that were within this church who made it their doctrine to say it's okay for us to go to the heathen temples. It's okay for us to participate in all of the feasts representing these different cults. It's okay. We can party with them. We can go out with them. We can do all of these things. We can be drunken in revelry with all of them. It's all right for us to do that. And it's okay for us to go and visit the temple prostitutes and involve ourselves in all of that. As long as you have Jesus too. If you have Jesus too, then you're all right. And that was the teaching of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus condemns this church for tolerating the presence of this group within the middle of it. And the interesting thing is there's such a fine balance here. If you remember when we were talking about the church at Ephesus, it was condemned for being intolerant, for wanting so desperately to have right doctrine and purity and doing things the right way that they forgot to love people. And then we come to this side of it. And here's a church that's been so busy loving people and embracing people That they begin to tolerate things that they ought not do that. And, And they had decayed with God on a moral level from the inside out. And so here's this fine line between the sin of tolerance and the sin of intolerance. And the Lord says to this church, you must deal with this situation. You must discipline yourself and not allow these people to feel at home among you unrebuked and unchecked in their attitudes. And it is a stern warning. is given to them and you get to the beginning of verse 16 and here is the what he says you must do repent therefore jesus is very straight to the point and direct repent because i have this against you and jesus has clearly connected the practices of compromise with the past sin of the wrath of God or or the events of the the wrath of God and so the direction is clear I want you to stop it and turn around and return back to me with all of your hearts we know that the word repent means according to the Bible there is a remorsefulness and a regretfulness and an attitude toward that sin that we then turn our back on it and run back to the Lord not that we ask forgiveness and stay there but that we remove ourselves from the situation and return back to God. And for those in Pergamum who had followed the Nicolaitans, repentance would require an acknowledgement of the sinfulness of their idolatry and sexual immorality and therefore reject those practices. And then we get to the end of verse 16 when he talks about the danger to consider. What would happen if the deceived, and disobedient people of Pergamum failed to renounce such practices? Well, it tells us in the rest of the verse that that Jesus gives them a clear danger to consider. He says, otherwise, if you ignore my word, otherwise I will come soon to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. You see, we have a tendency to think that nothing's going to happen soon. We have a tendency to involve ourselves in things and say, well, God hasn't done anything about it yet, so it must be that he's okay with this or he he winks at me or everything's going to be just fine. And clearly he says, I will come to you soon in a moment when you might not expect it. I'm going to come and I'm going to fight against that attitude in my church. Those who prove the hollowness ...of their godly confession through ungodly and unrepentant conduct will be judged. Because God cares about the purity in His church that much. So if your understanding today... ...of your Christian faith allows you to accommodate compromise... ...something is off in your understanding of what it is to be a child of God. This seems to be the case with the church at Pergamum. They would die for Christ... But they weren't going to live for him, at least not in the way free of compromise that he had wanted them in the world. But the other thing I love about the way Jesus addresses each of these churches is that he doesn't end there. Because as we've seen in the previous two letters, we get to verse 17. And he says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. He issues two challenges. I want you, number one, to hear, and secondly, to conquer. I I find it really fascinating that the Lord says there's a difference in what we hear and what we do. How many people do do you know can sit in a church and they can hear the truth, but they never take a step of faith to act on what they hear? He constantly is calling us to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only. And so he says, your ability to receive reward will be not only can you hear what the Spirit is saying, but will you obey what the Spirit is saying of you? And then he talks about hidden manna. Hidden manna is, is the food, of course, we know, that God supplied to the children of Israel when they were in the wilderness. And it, it's striking that the, how they got the name manna. It's kind of a fascinating thing because when the food fell to the ground and the children of Israel came out that morning, they looked at it. And, and when they saw it, they, they said, what is it? What is it? The Hebrew word for what is it is manna. So literally, manna is the what is it food. Have any of you ever eaten something you didn't know what it was? Manna. And once Israel had entered into the promised land, the manna ceased and they began to eat from the fruit of the land that they were there. But there was a little piece, a little bit of manna that was kept in, and it was hidden In a container put within the tabernacle and later the temple. And when Jerusalem fell to the Babylonians in 586 B.C., the pot of manna disappeared. Now tradition, this is fascinating. Tradition has it that the prophet Jeremiah, who was living at the time, took that pot of manna and hid it in a place where only the Messiah knows where it's at. Only Jesus knows where he hid that little bucket of manna. And so it's interesting when Jesus comes along and says, if you will do the right thing, I'm going to give you a little bit of the hidden manna. And then he says, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, would you please take your white stone? (laughs) This is a symbolic stone that represents what is yet to come in your future. And I'm going to want you to hang on to this, take it home with you, put it someplace where you can find it because there were a number of different uses for the white stone one of them was used when there was a court proceeding going on and everybody in the jury was given a white stone and a black stone and at the end of the oral arguments that would take place the judge would look at the people that were sitting there and say open your hand and they would open their hand and it was if they had the black stone the person was guilty if they opened their hand to a white stone, it meant that they were innocent. Another aspect of understanding that means that this white stone is going to mean to us someday that we are acquitted. When I stand before God someday, the enemy's going to have a whole long list of things that he could say that would cause God to want to open his hand and look at me and say, You're guilty. But Jesus. But Jesus took my black stone punishment for me so that I could have his white stone righteousness on me. Someday you're going to be acquitted, and you're going to give given a white stone. Another way the white stone was used in the cultures and home life, and honestly, I wish every husband we still had this available. And when you hear it, you'll understand why is that people would come home at the end of the day and they would have a basket and and if they had a great day they dropped a white stone in the basket do you know how easy that would be for husbands come home you look in the basket if there's a black stone you're going to mcdonald's you're not even going in if there's a white stone hallelujah there's good conversation in the house tonight Because the white stone represented joy, joy. There's a tradition that at the end of somebody's life that they would take all of the stones they had accumulated in their life and they would pour them out at their funeral. And if there was an abundance of white stones it indicated a joyful, joyous life. There's coming a day when you are gonna be given a white stone and it's gonna represent the joy of the Lord, which is our strength in the middle of all that we go through. There was another purpose for the white stone. It was the stone that represented that you were a victor. And there would be engraved on it something that all you ever had to do is when the big banquets were coming up, you just went and you opened your hand, and that engraved white stone allowed you to go into the great banquets. Automatically, it was your open invitation to everything that was going on. There is coming a marriage supper of the Lamb for those who overcome. And when I go to the door, I'm going to get to open my hand because there will be an inscribed white stone that's going to be given to his children. Open invitation that we can join in the celebration. And there's a sense in all of these meetings that the idea of this white stone, it's, it's the idea that we've been acquitted. It's the idea that We're joyful. It's the idea of being an admission ticket. But there's one more one more meaning to the white stone. It said it's going to have an engravement on your white stone. You're going to have a new name, which only you and God knows. Begin to think what does that mean? You know, if somebody calls my house or the office and asks if Reverend Douglas Dement is there, I know they don't know me. They don't know me. If they call and say, is Doug there, then probably we know one another. Because the closer we are together, the more intimate the name. Then my children and their spouses, they call me dad. My grandkids call me Popeye. (laughs) my wife has some names for me sometimes she calls me babe sometimes she calls me honey that used to be really special until the restaurant I go to has a waitress that calls me honey too I'm still trying to figure that one out how that works but the Lord said I'm To those who overcome, I'm going to give a new name. And it's a name that he sees in you. It's qualities that you don't see in yourself, but it's your character that he sees, and he's going to write it on a stone, and he's going to give it to you. And here's why this is so important to us, because if we were to give ourselves a name, that stone might say on it, insecure. It might say failure. It might say loser. It might say not good enough. It might say compromiser. But Jesus, but Jesus changed our nature. We are brand new creatures and he's got a new name that he's going to inscribe on a stone and it's going to be a lover's name it's going to be a name that only you and he know and when he calls it to you it's going to make your heart leap and it's written on the stone and forever the two of you will have a name that just as you look at each other it's that private name so I want you to look at your stone because it's going to mean something to you that's This stone's symbolic of a stone that God's going to give you and replace this one. But some of you need to put this one in your desk drawer. Some of you need to put it in your bedroom. Some of you need to put it near the alarm clock so that in the middle of feeling as if you are living in hell, you can grab that stone and say, symbolically and prophetically, there's a stone that's awaiting me. And I'm going to hang on to the acquittal and the joy and the name until God applies it to me, brand new. Because he told his church, if you will overcome, I will give you a white stone.